0: This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. Success is an incredibly powerful thing for the human mind. Not only does it make us feel tremendous and further us in the direction we want to go, But it also gives other people a chance to see us in our best light. Success can take many forms. It doesn't always have to be a grand and public display. Sometimes success can be celebrated privately, in the comfort of our own homes. It gives us confirmation that all the work we've been putting into a single task has been worth the effort, and if we stay true to this path, we will potentially continue to have many more successes ahead. On the other hand, there is luck. Some people just seem to have this innate streak of luck where others can barely catch a break. Those inherently lucky can just throw caution to the wind and are confident that they'll just catch what they want while others may not be aware of their own luck. Today I'm here to show you that you can be both lucky and successful. My proof is Igor Stravinsky and his second ballet, Petrushka. If you remember all the way back to episode 2, you may remember that, somehow, ballet impresario Sergei Diaghilev just happened to be at a performance of Stravinsky's orchestral work Fou and it was because of that coincidence that Diaghilev was able to find a replacement for the composer of his ballet, The Firebird. Stravinsky had been an accomplished composer before his association with Diaghilev. But he had not yet become the household name that he would eventually become to be known as, and so it was luck that brought the two together. However, after this bit of luck, the rest of Stravinsky's story, as far as The Firebird is concerned, is success via hard work and dedication. With the premiere of The Firebird came a new era of music in Paris, and people all over the world flocked there to witness the spectacle particularly because they were so intrigued by what this practically no-name composer had done to upend the musical culture of one of the largest artistic capitals of the world. That success brought opportunity. And for Diaghilev, the opportunity was to keep Stravinsky by his side for as long as he could, producing ballet after ballet before the enchantment wore off they were unstoppable, and their fate was set into stone. Together, Diaghilev and Stravinsky would bend the rules of music to their collective will and shift its trajectory towards earth-shattering ends. The Firebird was only the beginning of this new world of music and dance, untethered to the traditions of Western culture, and with Petrushka on the horizon, nothing and no one could stop them. This is The Composer Chronicles, a podcast that recounts the stories of composers past and present through the music they write. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 37, A Sad Shroff Time. St. Petersburg's Admiralty Square, a large crowd gathers for Maslenitsa, a Shrovetide fair that comes once a year just before the lantern season. It's a grand sight to behold. A ferris wheel and a carousel spin with bright, colorful lights as children gleefully cry out in excitement as they play games the fair's master of ceremonies stands up on a balcony, shouting out to passerbys outside the square to join in on the fun. A street organ makes its rounds through the square, stopping often to allow a dancing girl to entertain the gathering crowd. On the other side of the square, another dancing girl can be seen carrying a music box. She opens it and begins to dance with it, competing for the crowd's attention with the other dancing girl and street organ. In the center of the square, a puppet theater is set up, and a show is about to begin. The children jump up and down, pulling their parents towards the theater as the two drummers summon the crowd toward them. As the crowd settles around the theater, a magician magically appears before the audience, mystifying them with music on his flute. As he plays, the curtain on the theatre rises to reveal three puppets hanging on a wall. The Moor, the ballerina, and Petrushka. The magician passes by them, continuing to play his flute, and as he passes by each, he touches them with the flute, and they seem to waken. With a wave of the magician's hands, the puppet's feet begin to dance, a vigorous Russian dance. But as the dance commences, the puppets leap from the wall and dance amongst the crowd. The Moore dances with bravado as the ballerina perpetually dances on point, but the crowd's attention is drawn to Petrushka, whose dancing is so awkward that one can't help but stare. The performance becomes even stranger as Petrushka begins to pine after the ballerina, but she rejects him as she only has eyes for the more. The magician, furious that his puppets couldn't just go one dance without acting up, stops the dancing immediately and drops the curtain on them as quickly as he can. Exiled to his room inside the puppet theater, Petrushka flops around his room helplessly as he cries out in self-pity for his love of the ballerina and in hatred of the magician. He stares up at an ominous picture of the magician in his room and curses him for making him this way. The ballerina sneaks into Petrushka's room, but as soon as he realizes that she is there, he makes such a commotion that she flees in terror. Meanwhile, the moor is quietly waiting in his room, reclining on a divan and playing with a coconut. Unprovoked, he throws the coconut to the ground and tries to cut it open with a scimitar but when he fails to slice it open, he jumps to the conclusion that the coconut must be a god and proceeds to pray to it. As he is on his knees praying, the magician places the ballerina in his room. She is incredibly attracted to him, and to show her affection, she plays a romantic tune on a toy trumpet for him. As the two show their affection towards one another, Petrushka breaks free from his room and stops them in their tracks. Petrushka attacks them more but quickly realizes that he is no match for him, as the Moor is much bigger and also carries a weapon. Petrushka cowers in fear as the Moor beats him, and the ballerina faints in horror. With the Moor distracted by the ballerina, Petrushka flees for his life, but the Moor quickly chases him out of the theater and into the crowd. The merrymaking is at its peak by this point. It is in the evening, and all the beautiful lights twinkle as the sun is beginning to set. A peasant brings his dancing bear through the crowd, and it is followed by groups of gypsies and masqueraders. Just as the crowd is prepared for the main events of the fair, Petrushka rushes through the crowd with the moor quickly at his heels. Petrushka runs as fast as he can, but the moor is faster, and eventually catches up and slays him in the middle of the crowd. The horrified crowd disperses as police question the magician, but the magician tries to calm the crowd and reassure the police that nothing truly happened by lifting Petrushka's dead body over his head and shaking it to remind them all that Petrushka is only a puppet. Night has fallen and the crowd has left the fair for the evening. The square is quiet and the magician tiptoes out of the fair carrying Petrushka's limp body over his shoulders. Out of the corner of his eye, something catches the magician's attention and his eyes are drawn up to the roof of the theater where the ghost of Petrushka screams out at him in angry defiance. Petrushka uses his ghostly powers to make his carcass made of wood and straw to thumb his nose with the magician. Terrified, the magician runs from the fair glancing over his shoulder one last time. While this tale of Petrushka is the making of the ballet's composer, Igor Stravinsky, you may recognize this quirky yet mysterious puppet by his other names. In England, he is known as Punch, as in the Punch and Judy puppet show. Pulcinella in Italy and Pachanel in France, both from the Commedia d'Arte, who, in modern culture, is probably most recognized by his appearance as Mother Ginger's many children in Piotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky's ballet, The Nutcracker. Even Austria and Germany have their own version of Petrushka, known to them as Casper. Depending on the performance, any of these characters can closer resemble the other Commedia d'Arte character, Pierrot. But when the Russians adapted this puppet character for their own culture, they did away with the sulking, lovesick personality and kept his alternate personality, the more squeaky-voiced trickster who argues with the devil and enforces moral justice with a slapstick. Petrushka was brought to Russia in the 18th century by Empress Anna Ivanovna along with several other marionettes and puppets. Petrushka, however, was a hand puppet, and so he was made the common people's puppet. He performed in street theaters and open-air venues where anybody could gather to be entertained. Diaghilev and his Belarus aimed to bring Russian culture to the rest of the Western world, who at this point considered Russian culture to be highly exotic. It's quite ironic, as the topics that Diaghilev brought to his audiences were occasionally Russian retellings of their own stories. Petrushka was the perfect subject for another ballet. He was already an established character in much of Western Europe, so it was serendipitous when Diaghilev came knocking at Stravinsky's door, only to find that Stravinsky was already writing a piece using Petrushka as a subject. Before we get to that fateful day, Let's rewind back to just after the premiere of The Firebird. Shortly after the Paris premiere of the ballet, he relocated his family to Brittany briefly, before ending up in Clarence, Switzerland. His wife Katya was pregnant with their third child, and she was also suffering from a pulmonary ailment. The harsh climate of Russia was certainly no help to this ailment, so the move to Switzerland was not only beneficial for Stravinsky's budding career but for the health of his wife and unborn child. Luckily, the move was quite beneficial. His child was a healthy baby boy, and all was well. However, Stravinsky wasn't the man that he was prior to the premiere of The Firebird. The success changed him. All the years of following musical rules and shackled by societal norms were finally over. The Firebird confirmed that he could be successful with his unique imagination and this thought frankly tired him out. So amidst all the moving and the fame, Stravinsky decided to take a step back for a moment and let things cool down in the ballet world. To do that, he turned towards his first love, the piano, for comfort. During this hectic time, Stravinsky took up writing a concert work with a fairly general scenario. In this concertstruck, as he called it, a puppet springs to life and diabolically commands the orchestra to play music for him to dance to. The work was going quite well, the scenario was set, and the music had begun. And that's when Diaghilev and Nizhinsky came knocking on his door. We'll pick back up after the break. My name is Kaylin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Tea Time Thoughts. Do you ever wish you could learn more about history, books, music, art, and culture, but you just don't know where to start? I totally feel your pain. Learning about all these things can be so overwhelming. Well, I want to change all of that for you. In my podcast, Tea Time Thoughts, I'll show you just how fun it all can be. In the time it takes to have a cup of tea, I'm going to teach you everything from the French Revolution to the Black Plague, Mozart to Broadway musicals, Da Vinci to Robert Frost, Ancient Egypt to Queen Elizabeth II, and more. You can stream Tea Time Thoughts wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. So what are you waiting for? Put the kettle on and listen to Tea Time Thoughts today. The Paris premiere of The Firebird was in June of 1910, and it certainly didn't take long for Diaghilev to come looking for Stravinsky's skills once again. Luckily for Diaghilev, Stravinsky had already begun work on another piece, using the scenario of a puppet coming to life to dance. Diaghilev took Nijinsky with him to visit Stravinsky at his home in Klaren that October, and together they would come begging to have Stravinsky work on another project with them When they discovered that he had already begun this concert stuch, their minds immediately went to Petrushka, who essentially embodied everything that Stravinsky's unnamed puppet already had. Diaghilev fell madly in love with the piece, and his next step was to convince Stravinsky to convert this already well-developed piano work into an expertly crafted ballet. As a bonus, Diaghilev would have Alexandre Benoit aid him in constructing a libretto. This would assuredly pull in Stravinsky's attention, as the two had developed a great respect for one another during the creation of the Firebird. Diaghilev, however, didn't quite share the same enthusiasm for Benoit as Stravinsky did. Diaghilev had credited the artist Leon Baxt for the libretto of Scheherazade, and Benoit, having been the true librettist, was especially offended. So, for the sake of another hit with the Ballet Russe, Diaghilev would have to put aside his hesitations for the greater good. Luckily for Stravinsky, Benoit was quite eager to work with him on Petrushka. Benoit had the benefit of Stravinsky completing a significant portion of the music, specifically in the second tableau, and Stravinsky's puppet was already close in personality to Petrushka. So where does Benoit come in? He provided a great amount of the ethnographic details of the Shrovetide fair and the tradition of the Russian puppet theater. These were traditions that were uniquely Russian, something that Stravinsky had not yet incorporated into his original work. The two worked brilliantly together, well enough for the piece to be considered the epitome of complete integration of libretto, music, choreography, and scenic design. The integration of the Shavtide Fair was a great point of excitement for all. The fair was an integral part of many of the Russes' staff, and many of them had a great deal to say about it. Choreographer Branislava Najinska, the sister of Vaslav Nijinsky, recounted her memories as a child with Vaslav and their fondness for the puppet shows in particular. Based on Branislava's recollections, Vaslav's part in the role of Petrushka makes complete sense. As kids, the two would often stage their own performances of the puppet show using their parlor sofa as a stage. As a part of the show, Jan Nijinsky and his brother Stasik would let the bodies of the puppets hang over the top of the sofa, letting the arms dangle and swing. So it would be no surprise that such a characterization would make it into Nijinsky's depiction of Stravinsky's puppet. From Diaghilev's and Nijinsky's visit in October 1910 to March of 1911, Stravinsky and Benoit worked together with a give-and-take approach, neither wanting to step on each other's toes. The relationship became the butt of their own jokes, laughing at the fact that neither wanted to overshadow the other. For now. There was one thing that Benoit was adamant about. The story of Petrushka must be instigated by a magician or, as it is often labeled, the charlatan. The magician must wake up the puppets, and the magician is to try and calm the crowd at the end that Petrushka's death was just a show. For a while, that's how the story was to go, but Stravinsky wanted to take the story one step further. Petrushka is to die, and his ghost is to come back from the beyond to haunt the man who tormented him for far too long. Up to this point, the only thing that seems to be sad about Petrushka is the libretto. Stravinsky and Benoit were getting along brilliantly, and Diaghilev was getting everything he wanted. However, it's at this point, when Stravinsky was wrapping up writing the score, that things began to take a turn for the worse. Diaghilev had previously scheduled several performances for the Ballet Russes in Italy, As a result, the company was forced to rehearse Petrushka in the dirty, cramped, and hot basement of the restaurant of the Teatro Cantanzi. Fokin, the ballet's choreographer, begrudgingly staged the dances, while Stravinsky played the piano without a moment's rest. Fokin constantly mumbled under his breath that the music was an undanceable mess. The Paris season was just around the corner, and the score was still unfinished. Tempers grew short amongst the creative staff and production team. Benoit complained that the theatre staff was incompetent, the corps de ballet was filled with amateur dancers to meet the demands of the casting, and the stage was falling apart before their very eyes, threatening a great deal of physical injuries if they were to continue. To make matters even worse, anti-Russian demonstrators threatened to sabotage the performance. Nijinska remembered that just before going out for a performance, she found handfuls of tacks and nails strewn across the floor, just waiting for an unknown dancer to step on them and stop them from dancing. The 1911 Paris season was not starting off great, obviously, and rehearsals of Petrushka were still no better. Stravinsky continued to play the rehearsals with no change in his demeanor while Fouquin nearly pulled out his hair in hysterical fits of crying. The rehearsals with Pierre Manteau and the orchestra were no better. The score's quirky rhythms and textural complexities baffled the musicians. Manteau was forced to split the orchestra in half so that he could teach them the music one section at a time. Stravinsky and Fouquin were endlessly at odds about the tempi of the ballet with Stravinsky arguing that he knew what was best for his ballet, while Fokin claimed the dancers could not keep up with the complex rhythms. Everything was spinning out of control. Nothing was going well. But Diaghilev was not backing out now. The ballet finally had its premiere on June 13, 1911, at the Théâtre du Châtelet. Surprisingly, the performance was given without a single hitch no demonstrations, no fumbling, and the orchestra played superbly. With The Firebird, Stravinsky introduced the characters with a hushed sound in an ambiguous atmosphere tugging at good and evil. But with Petrushka, the audience was smacked in the face with immediate joy and thrust into the state of bliss that so many Russians felt growing up with the grand and opulent Stravtide Fair. Petrushka was a success. Not as much as a Firebird had been, but enough for Stravinsky to realize his true love of ballet, an art form that he had previously damned. Just a month after the premiere of Petrushka, Stravinsky wrote to Vladimirsky korsakov Nikolai's son, saying, quote, I love ballet and am more interested in it than anything else. And this is not just an idle enthusiasm but a serious and profound enjoyment a scenic spectacle, of the art of animated form." End quote. This was only the beginning of Stravinsky's career as a ballet composer. And while the Firebird was the spark that Stravinsky needed, with Petrushka, now his love of the art and desire to write ballet was a fully formed flame, a flame that was growing more and more and about to ignite one of the largest riots in the history of music. This episode was written and researched by me, Stephen Trigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. All music and sources used for this episode can be found on the show notes or by going to alexandriamediaorg slash The Composer Chronicles. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can submit ratings and reviews. If you really like this show, become a member on my Patreon page. For only $1.50 per month, members get early access to ad-free versions of every episode, plus a bonus podcast titled Unscripted. Memberships are a huge support, so consider becoming a member. If you'd like to stay up to date on all news related to The Composer Chronicles, follow the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Podcast on all platforms. This Sunday, Valentine's Day, I'm releasing a special holiday bonus episode for you to enjoy. I don't want to give too much away about this great bonus, but just know that if you are a fan of all of the different musical adaptations of Romeo and Juliet, you're in for a treat. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.